millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live in the studio is my mom. Hi, Mom. Hi, Chandler. Welcome to my studio. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Let's give it a whirl. Okay. And I just want to say hello, everybody. Welcome to the beach. Chandler is at my house in my studio, which is very um, hippy-dippy, I think. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is uh, much different than the uh, recording cave that I have set up. We've got lots of seashells and plants and all sorts of other things uh, all over the place. It's very (laughs) bright and cheery. Well, we're very excited to have you all listening today. Um, Wherever you are, anywhere in the world, anywhere in any dimension. Yeah, sure. Um, we're sending this out to other dimensions too. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you are getting, uh, the, this podcast out in those other dimensions, uh, make sure to, uh, give us five star reviews and, uh, give us a rating if you can. Uh, we are so happy to come to you, uh, wherever you are, uh, so, uh, pleased, uh, with, uh, the support of this show, uh, all around, uh, this great country and all around this wonderful world. Uh, and for those of you, if this is your first episode of History and retrograde uh, welcome uh, the way that we do things here is that uh, in a moment i will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure to my mother she will then input that data into the back computer and out will come the astrological birth chart where all the planets moons and stars were at the moment that that person was born she will then do her best to give a blind reading of the chart telling us what she can about the person's personality character motivations fortunes of this mystery history guest. I'll then reveal to her who our uh, historical figure is, give a little background about the person, then we'll come together at the end and figure out how accurate the chart was at deciding what that person would do. And without any further ado, let us begin. Okay. This is a male. Uh Uh-huh. Born on the 26th. Okay. Of May. All right. 1907. Ooh. 
Do we have a time? 5 a.m. <gasps> I'm so excited. All right. Where in the world? The United States. Okay. And what town? Winterset, Iowa. Winterset, Iowa. Okay. All right. So again, this is a male born on the 26th of May, 1907, 5 a.m., Winterset, Iowa. All right. Let's take a look at this and see what's happening. All right. Wow. Very interesting. Okay, let's go through the planets. We have Sun at 4 degrees Gemini, Moon at 18 degrees Scorpio, Mercury at 6 degrees Gemini, Venus at 4 degrees Taurus, Mars at 18 degrees Capricorn, Jupiter at 11 degrees Cancer, Saturn at 25 degrees Pisces, Uranus at 12 degrees Capricorn, Neptune at 10 degrees Cancer, Pluto at 22 degrees Gemini, North Node at 24 degrees Cancer, Chiron at 18 degrees Aquarius, and this person has their ascendant at 5 degrees Gemini, making their midhaven at 11 degrees Aquarius. Very interesting. Okay, well, uh, this is a Western tropical astrology chart uh, created using Placidus houses. And uh, I can see right away that we do have an interception. You see this, Chandler? Mm -hmm. We have an interception in Taurus and Scorpio where those houses are encapsulated one within this 12th house cusp in Aries and one within this sixth house cusp in Leo. I mean, oh, Libra. So our Scorpio and Taurus houses are inside of there. We have a double Gemini houses and double Sagittarius houses. So we got extra Sag and extra Gemini and not so much Scorpio and Taurus. Those have to be activated. So let's start with, uh, let's just start with the first house cusp at five degrees Gemini. All right. So we have Mercury in Gemini in the first house. Okay. So this person should have been very chatty, very capable of communication, very capable of intellectual communication. They also have Pluto in Gemini at 22 degrees. So it is not conjunct by degree, but it is conjunct by sign. So this should have been a very powerful communicator. If not a powerful communicator, then definitely, uh, death and rebirth with that ability because it's Pluto. But I think people who have Pluto in the first house are very dynamic. I have my own personal reasons for thinking this, but uh, I do think they do tend to have a presence, P 
people with Pluto in the first house. I guess if their Pluto in the first house was in something like Scorpio, it would be a little bit darker. But uh, I can't imagine that this guy doesn't have some kind of razzle-dazzle going on. Then our second house cusp is also Gemini because of that interception. And uh, in the second house, we have Neptune at 10 degrees Cancer and Jupiter at 11 degrees Cancer in a second house that's ruled by Gemini. So Neptune conjunct Jupiter by degree in cancer. That is a very nurturing way of addressing your finances. Uh, very interesting and an imaginative way because it's Neptune and Jupiter in the second house is going to be benevolent. So there must have been um, benevolence in the finances. That only stands to reason. Uh, benevolence and nurturing and maybe something having to do with the moon or mother. Interesting. Now, third house cusp is cancer and we have the north node in the third house of communications. Again, we go back to this powerful communication aspect with Mercury conjunct Pluto in Gemini by sign in the first house. And now we have North Node in Cancer in the third house in Cancer. Uh, so that should be also nurturing communications. Very interesting communication situation here. A nurturing then we have fourth house cusp is Leo. There's nothing in there, but that fourth house in Leo would be leadership in the community, leadership in the home, leadership or entertainment in the community, uh, bringing joy to the community. Also, probably dramatic house home furnishings, that kind of thing. Fifth house is ruled by Virgo. There's nothing in the fifth house, but uh, your fifth house is entertainment, entertaining Leo things. So if this person is doing this, we have a fifth house uh, that changes to Libra in the center of it. So half Virgo, half Libra, fifth house, uh, no placements in there, no planets in there, but there should have been an ability to be able to lead or entertain in a Virgonian way, which would be organized. Um, also with that Libra, it would be pretty. Sixth house cusp is a Libra. And we have moon in Scorpio falling in that sixth house because of the Placidus house system. But we need something to activate that moon. We need something to activate that Scorpio. So if this person has moon in Scorpio in the sixth house, but it's intercepted, there's something about 
addressing your emotions, being able to connect with the mother, being able to connect with your emotions, being able to connect with women and feminine, the feminine, it is disconnected because of the interception in Scorpio, which would make it even more behind the wall. Uh, maybe I'll know who this person is and have some point of reference for that. But then we have six houses, Libra, seventh house is Sag because we're missing a house cusp in Scorpio. So seventh house, Sagittarius, because we have seventh and eighth house Sagittarian cusps because of this interception. Uh, seventh house in Sagittarius is going to be a little hard to pin down. That's going to be a little bit uh, difficult to get this person to commit to a relationship wholeheartedly because Sagittarius wants to roam. Sagittarius wants the adventure. Sagittarius is going to want more uh, freedom. So this person doesn't have any planets in their seventh house, but um, they do have Sag on the seventh house cusp. They also have Sagittarius on the eighth house cusp. And in their eighth house is their Mars conjunct Uranus in Capricorn. Mars in Capricorn is very um, methodical, very strategic in their ability to plan and make plans. Uranus in Capricorn, Uranus isn't any more uh, at home in Capricorn than it is in Virgo. It is, Uranus is the, is the plan of spontaneity. Uranus is spontaneity. It is the lightning planet. It comes out of the blue. And to have this conjunct within five degrees of your Mars in Capricorn is going to give you some sideswiped issues when you are trying to strategize your goal because Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, which is control. And so having your Mars in Capricorn <laughs> conjunct Uranus in Capricorn, that can be a double-edged sword because if you can't handle these out of the blue things coming into your strategy, that could be problematic. And it's in your eighth house, the house of legacy and other people's money and taxes and possibly uh, inheritance and legacy, unexpected legacy, maybe. Very interesting. We'll see how that plays out. Ninth house is ruled by Capricorn. We don't have any planets in there, but a ninth house Capricorn would give you a very stable process to your education, higher education, world travel, philosophies, dogma, religion, all of these things that are ruled by Jupiter and Sagittarius. Then 10th house cusp we have Aquarius and we have Chiron in Aquarius in the 10th house. 
we have an Aquarian Midhaven at 11 degrees with Chiron at 18 degrees in Aquarius. If this person is not a natural humanitarian in some kind of way, because we have this Chiron, which is the wounded healer in Aquarius, which is healing humanity. The other side of that is totalitarianism. And that would be that they were not doing their Chiron correctly. But this person's career, because it's 10th house and the Midhaven is connected to this Chiron in Aquarius, which is humanitarianism. So somehow this person's career should be dealing with healing humanity. Then we have the 11th house cusp, which is Pisces, which would make this person again very uh, open and should make them available to the public, even though they have Saturn in Pisces. But Pisces is the healer. Pisces heals. It is the spiritual healer. And having Saturn in Pisces means your lessons are somehow connected to entertaining imagination because Neptune rules Pisces. So now we're dealing with illusion and creating illusion and creativity. These are your lessons bringing this to the public, which is groups in the 11th house. Your Saturn is in Pisces. You heal with the illusion, with the creativity, with the art, artistic ability, because where Virgo is healing with medical, Pisces is healing the spiritual, the soul. Something about that. But, I mean, worst case scenario, Pisces is also addiction. So there's that. And also Capricorn can be addiction too. That's the dark side. Midway through their 11th house, Aries comes in. So there is some power with that, some ability to lead that, some fire in there, in that 11th house, with bringing this to the public. 12th house cusp is Aries, and we have our Venus at four degrees Taurus in this house, but it has to be activated the same as the moon has to be activated. This person should have had some maybe hurdles with female something to do with female and needing to get to that because we have this opposition, not by degree, but we have Venus at four degrees Taurus and moon at 18 degrees Scorpio opposing each other by sign and encapsulated inside of this interception. So something Taurus, someone with Taurus, um, 
placements, someone with Taurus placements and someone with Scorpio placements is needed to activate these, the moon and the Venus. That's my philosophy on this. And then we have sun at four degrees in Gemini in the 12th house. So the sun, this person's essence is karmic in the 12th house because it, and it's about this communication because it's in Gemini. And Gemini is mercurial mind, smart, quick, capable of improvisation, uh, fast movement, uh, where other people will be still trying to figure it out that Gemini is already there. Do you have any questions? Or first of all, am I even on in anywhere in the ballpark? Yes. Oh, that's always good to know. Uh, what would this person do for a living? Well, do you see how their six house is Libra? Six house is your day-to-day -day work, all right? And uh, their moon is in the sixth house, but it's inside this interception. So there's some issue regarding emotional well-being in the day-to-day -day work. But they do have Pisces. Strike that. They do have... Aquarius on their 10th house cusp, which is career, which is healing. Somehow it has to do with communication, creativity, and using this somehow to heal people. If we're all going with the good side, um, I think they're there. I think that it has something to do with creative communication and healing healing in an Aquarian way which should be dealing with um, innovative new a new way because Uranus rules Aquarius which is innovative and new inventions a new way of healing. I mean, they could, they could, they're, I would assume they're very smart and creative with that. So something maybe dealing with a new way to heal, but I don't feel like it's a new way to heal with medicine because this is not, there's not a lot of Virgo in here. In fact, there's no Virgo in here. So, um, somehow creatively nurturing with some, I don't know, maybe a new invention or a new way of communicating. What is his relationship to his country? Well, uh, this person has Leo on the fourth house, if this is the correct birth time. This per if this stuff isn't fitting, then we might not have the correct birth time. But with Leo on your fourth house cusp, I would think that this person is some sort of leader or shiny thing towards your house, your home, your community, your country. I think that they would be dramatically loyal, like 
not only are they loyal, but they want you to know they're loyal. You know, Leo needs people to recognize. <laughs> Leo needs you to recognize what's going on. Is this an emotionally intelligent person? There is definitely going to be a disconnect in this emotional situation, because if this birth time is correct, their moon falls inside of an intercepted house in Scorpio. So where normally, without the interception, they would be very aware of their emotions. This person has their Venus housed inside of a Taurus house that you can't get to and their moon inside of a Scorpio house that you can't get to. So that's an issue. They need something else to connect them to this. Now they do have Jupiter in Cancer and Neptune in Cancer and North Node in Cancer, which may help them with this situation. But there is a situation here. And the situation is that there is, uh, it, I would assume this is more difficult than a person who doesn't have an interception housing their moon and their Venus. How would he handle someone who disagrees with him? This person has Mars and Capricorn, Mercury and Gemini. That Mars and Capricorn is very strategic. And that Mercury and Gemini is going to be very quick-minded. And it is conjunct Pluto by sign. And their Mercury is conjunct their sun by degree. I think that this person would find it brilliantly entertaining to at every stop outthink them. Just outthink them, constantly outthinking them, like it was uh, nectar to outthink someone. That's what I would think. What is his relationship to his mother? See, here we have the situation with this moon in Scorpio inside of this interception. This person, I think, would have really, really wanted to love their mother and wanted their mother to love them. But we have an issue with this interception in the sixth house, which is day-to-day -day life and job and all of this. Having this Venus disconnected in the 12th house, that's karmic. And having this moon disconnected in Scorpio in the sixth house. I feel like there's something between it that you need this to be activated. Now, if his mother was a Scorpio, he should be good because the mother would be activating this, you know, but there's some issue, I think, with the mother. What would he look like? I want to say this person could look like, if this is the correct birth time, because it's Gemini rising, Gemini risings, I want to say, look like they have a glint in their eye, like they um, have that trickster kind of energy, because there's going to be a lot of energy because it's mercurial, you know? So if this is, in fact, the correct birth time and this person does have Gemini rising, I would think that this person would look or have this kind of um, trickster energy about them. I would think they would be 
cute more than handsome. You know what I mean? Like not the depth of that, but like you would imagine pixie people to look like is what I think people with Gemini rising look like. You know, they have like a, I think Mae West is one of the ones that we did that had Gemini rising, right? I think where they're funny. They are, uh, they have this wit about them. And it isn't so much that they like, like to me, Mae West, when you look at her, I mean, I think she's really pretty, but she isn't like sultry, beautiful. You know what I mean? When you look at her, you know, this is a, this is, this is tricky. This is a trickster energy. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. And if this is correct, because I don't know if it is. What is he looking for in a partner? I don't know that he wants a partner, meaning his Venus is intercepted in Taurus. Okay. His moon is intercepted in Scorpio. If those were not intercepted, I would think he was looking for someone very stable and a person who was in touch with their emotions. Maybe he's looking for a person who is um, even uh, femme fatalish with this uh, um, Venus in Taurus, maybe even a woman with money and uh, moon in Scorpio. She needs to have some connection to her own emotions and her own sexuality. But this person has Sagittarius on the seventh house cusp. Sagittarius is going to need to really, really, uh, be interested in this person because they're going to go from flower to flower to flower because they're too busy. They're too busy doing the adventure or they need someone who can go on the adventure with them. If that makes any sense. Their North node is in the third house, which when you asked me previously about, um, about what their uh, job might be, it, I feel like it really does have something to do with communications because there's a lot of communication in here and having North node in the third house, that's about, Third house is communication. So there's something about nurturing through communications also. What kind of father would he be? Well, he has son in Gemini. So that could make him a very fun father. Uh, but he has Mars in Capricorn, which could make him a very, a more responsible father. He has Saturn in Pisces, which could make him a creative father. So if all of these placements are good, I would think he would be a fairly decent father and take it seriously. The downside of that would be addiction, possibly more addiction. Do you have any other final first impressions? I think uh, this could be a very fun person. I think that if they can get in touch with their emotions um, through people, 
you know, other people with placements that activate those, this person could be quite lovely. But if they cannot get in touch with their emotions, um, that could be problematic for this person. And I know that that would be for anybody, you know, but most people don't have their moon intercepted in Scorpio and they don't have their Venus intercepted in the 12th house, which is karma in Taurus, you know? Well, at this time, I think we're ready for a summary of our findings. First thing you said is that he would be very chatty, a very chatty communicator, an intellectual uh, communicator, a very powerful communicator. Uh, there's death and rebirth with communication. He would have a presence, a sort of razzle-dazzle. Uh, there's a nurturing way uh, with his money, uh, and an imaginative way with his finances. Uh, communication is his direction, and nurturing communication. Uh, leadership and entertainment in the community, uh, and he would have a very dramatic house. He has an ability to lead and entertain in an organized way. Uh, he, uh, th there is some problems with addressing his emotions. There's a disconnect with the mother and feminine energy. Uh, the, these two are sort of locked behind a wall. Uh, he could be hard to pin down uh, to form a commitment uh, with a partner. Uh, he would be very methodical and strategic. Uh, things uh, out of the blue, issues out of the blue could happen while he's strategizing towards a goal. Uh, there are out of the blue things connected uh, with finances. Uh, there would be an out of the blue unexpected uh, thing that would lead to his legacy. Um, he, th there's a very stable process in regards to his education, religion, and philosophy. Uh, he's a natural humanitarian, or possibly a totalitarian. Uh, he has a career that is connected to humanitarian healing. Uh, he would be very open to the public. Uh, goals connected to entertaining and illusion uh, and public, uh, of entertaining and providing a creative illusion to the public. He could heal groups of people with his illusion, creativity, and art. There is a possibility of addiction in his life. Uh, there is power with bringing the illusion to the public. There are hurdles with feminine energy. Uh, the essence uh, is there. There, the essence is karmic with communication. Um, smart, quick, witty communication. Issues with emotional well-being in his day-to-day -day life. Communication creativity is used to heal the people. A new way of healing through creativity. Very smart and creative. A leader or... Uh, he, could, he could be a leader in the country and be very dramatically loyal, demonstrably loyal to the country and the community. Uh, he would have a disconnect with his emotions, a difficulty with emotions. He is strategic and quick, constantly outthinking opponents. He really wanted to love and to be loved by his mother, but there is an issue there. He would have a sort of glint in his eye, a sort of trickster energy, and would be cute more than handsome. He is funny and witty. 
he might be a loner. Uh, he is looking for stability emotionally, uh, and a, a woman who is emotionally strong, uh, but could be sort of a femme fatale type, uh, and would really need to be interested in a woman to actually settle down. Uh, he would need this woman to go on the adventure with him. Um, he could be a very fun father, uh, also responsible and creative. He would take being a father very seriously. He would be a very fun person uh, who needs help with his emotions. Yeah, that sounds right. If this birth time is correct and these are all falling where they need to, does that sound like this person? I think certain parts do. I hope I know who it is. So uh, this episode is scheduled to come out on May 26th, so this band's actual birthday. Oh, mm -hmm. And uh, there are several people in my life that are uh, very important who were born on May 26th. My sister, born on May 26th. I have a good friend named Harrison who's born on May 26th. And this is one of the people who is very important in my life as well, who was oh. born on May 26th. This is the astrological birth chart of John Wayne. <gasps> oh my goodness. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay, I'm just letting all this sink in. Yeah. I think I did get that. But John Wayne, uh... Gemini rising. I would think John Wayne, but I don't know how big John Wayne really was. 6'4". Six, 6'4". Four. Six, four. Interesting. We might not have the right birth time, though. We'll have to see. Because I would put him more like Taurus rising. Mm -hmm. like, a, like a presence, you know? But look, I mean, here we have it. just a few minutes different. See this, Chandler? Mm -hmm. And we would have Taurus rising. So we might be off a little bit. Mm -hmm. And all of that would dick, 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 go all the way around. I don't know that it would change the interception, though. That That's important. I really don't know that it would. But I, I believe we might be a few minutes off because this is showing Gemini rising at five degrees. And I think we might be late degree Taurus mm -hmm. because that would make more sense with his presence. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't come across to me as a Gemini rising. Mm -hmm. But maybe that'll be something we'll work on at another time. Mm -hmm. I want to hear about John Wayne. Uh, so John Wayne uh, was born uh, Marion Robert Morrison, May 26, 1907, in Iowa. I think it's very interesting that this season we've had a girl named Howard and a boy named Marion. Mm -hmm. um, he was born to Clyde and Molly Morrison. Uh, Clyde, uh, the father, he was a pharmacist in the community. Everyone describes him as being very good-natured and sort of affable. He had a hard time uh, making a living. He had a hard time making things work out. Um, and that his mother, uh, Molly, was known as being very domineering and very strict and controlling and was very disappointed in uh, his father. I uh, was very disappointed and they got in fights all the time, Molly and Clyde. Clyde uh, was a pharmacist and a lot of times uh, at certain point his pharmacy, um, it, he went bankrupt. He had to shut it down. 
and there was a lot of financial strife in the family and long fights. Um, at a very early age, uh, Marion uh, had a hard time dealing with all these fights. He suffered from insomnia from all the, the uh, violent fights going on in the home and ran away from home many times. Um, in 1912, uh, the, a little brother uh, named Robert came into the family. And once that happened, the mother lost any interest in Marion, uh, really looked at Robert as being the golden child and looked at uh, Marion as not being able to do anything and really kind of left him to his own devices. Uh, and uh, two years later, in 1914, they leave Iowa and they go to Palmdale, California. Uh, they get uh, 80 acres, uh, believing that they are getting choice farmland in California, but they're actually in the middle of the desert. And uh, his father, Clyde, tries to make it a go of it as a farmer, um, but you can't really grow too much stuff in the desert of California. No. Um, and... Uh, Young Morrison, he had, uh, he really hated this house. It had no electricity or plumbing. It was out in the frontier. He had a horse that he would have to take to go to places. And he always resented that, uh, going into town and seeing other people with good things. And he was living destitute with um, with nothing. Uh, he, he was also deathly afraid of the desert. The snakes, the jackrabbits would pop out and scare him. Um, and uh, really hated being in the outdoors. Uh, a few years later, they moved to Glendale, uh, California, um, and uh, by this point, he's a young man uh, or, or a young child growing up um, with the name Marion. He got in a lot of fights, and he was being bullied a lot of the time because of his name, uh, and he was eager and anxious to find any other name that would fit him. Well, the family had a dog, and the dog, it was a big dog, it was about the size of a wolfhound, uh, and uh, the family named him Duke. And every day, the dog, the dog was his best friend, because none of the boys wanted to be his friend, because he had a girl name. Uh, so his best friend was this dog named Duke, and every day the dog would walk with him to school, and as they would go to school, they would pass the firehouse. And the firehouse, the dog would stay at the firehouse for the whole day, and then uh, when uh, Morrison came back from school, he'd pick up the dog. And the firemen liked the dog so much, and they liked the little boy, that they called them Big Duke and Little Duke. And Big Duke was the dog, and Little Duke was the boy. And that's how he got his name. So he would go by Duke Morrison uh, from, that, from then on. Uh, he, in his high school yearbook, he's listed as Duke Morrison. His first acting jobs are as Duke, and that would be a name that followed him for the rest of his life. Um, he uh, absolutely loved uh, the movies. Uh, we're in the uh, 19-teens. There's silent movies all over the place. And being in Glendale, the movies are being filmed right outside because at that point, Glendale was the, the West. There were mountains and things uh, to film these Westerns in. And so he loved the silent films of John Ford, uh, the director uh, making Westerns. Uh, he loved the stars Harry Carey, W.S. Hart, Tom Mix. And when they started shooting, shooting these uh, in his own neighborhood in Glendale, he would pick up odd jobs because you really didn't have the necessity for a closed set because there's no microphones. It's a right. silent picture. So yeah. anybody can walk up and you can always use a young boy to 
you know, as a grip or as uh, doing a prop man. And so he would sit in and he would uh, do all these jobs on the set and all the guys on the set really loved all the work that he was doing. Uh, by the time he gets into high school, he's really growing into himself. Now he's changed his name to Duke. Uh, a lot of these problems aren't affecting him so much and he's very personable and all he grows into this very handsome young man. All the ladies love him. He becomes this great athlete. He's 6'4", uh, and he uh, becomes a leader at um, Glendale Union High School. Uh, he is an, uh, the, the president of the Shakespeare Club, the debate team, Latin Club, French Club, newspaper. Um, he is in everything, and he is he's the co-captain of the football team. And when he graduates high school, the football team is what actually allows him to go to college because he, his family doesn't have enough money to send him anywhere, but he gets a football scholarship to USC. And uh, so he's on a pre-law track. He wants to become a lawyer and he's playing football and working his way through school on top of all these things and sending money back home to the family too. Uh, and while he's a, a freshman at USC, he meets uh, Josephine Sands, and uh, she was from a completely different world. She was a, a wealthy, elite Spanish-American socialite. Uh, and they come from these two very different worlds, um, but they connect together. And so uh, they start seeing each other. Uh, the next year, his sophomore year in 1926, during a football game, uh, Duke uh, suffers a shoulder injury and uh, it becomes a permanent injury. And so he can't play football anymore and he loses his scholarship. So he can't go to school anymore. And uh, when that happened, uh, he uh, went back to the studios. Uh, so the football coach at USC had some connections uh, with Fox Studios. It wasn't yet 20th Century Fox because they hadn't merged yet. Mm -hmm. So it was Fox Studios and got uh, Duke a job as a prop man. So getting uh, the props, uh, carrying things all over the set and that he was being paid uh, $35 a, a week uh, to do oh, that. My. And while he's there on the set, he's meeting and rubbing shoulders with all the people who are making the movie. So he becomes a good friend of John Ford. John Ford is, and I, one of these days, we'll get into more of their relationship between John Ford and John Wayne, but I would be curious to see how similar uh, John Ford's chart would be to his mother, or uh, because the, the there's a the relationship is very um, it's very interesting. So John Ford is this very crusty man uh, and really doesn't like anybody, but John Wayne can charm the pants off of anybody, right. and so John Ford recognizes that and really is trying to figure the guy out and becomes good friends with him while he's doing that. Another director, uh, Raoul Walsh, who we'll talk about a little bit more in a second, and one of the greatest stories that I don't think ne gets told nearly enough is that on these sets of these westerns is the actual Wyatt Earp, because Wyatt Earp had gone to California pleading with anybody to buy the rights to his life to make a movie about his life, and nobody was doing it. And so Wyatt Earp would be, and he would serve as sort of a consultant of like how things actually went because he lived it as the real Wild West gunman lawman. And nobody would listen to him, but Duke would sit next to him and listen to his stories. And Duke studied everything about the man, the way that he talked, the way that he walked, the way that he said things, the way that he picked up a cup of coffee. And that all went into his brain to create 
John Wayne. Yes. So when you see John Wayne, in a way, you're seeing the real life Wyatt Earp because wow. that's how he acted. Uh, so uh, they're working on these sets, and Raoul Walsh, that director I mentioned uh, a few seconds ago, he's going to make what's going to be the biggest Western ever made, uh, and it's going to be called The Big Trail. And this is 1930. It's going to be a talkie, and not only that, it's going to be uh, filmed on this brand new way of filming, uh, 70 millimeters. It's going to be, you're going to have to have new theaters to show this thing. It's going to be wow. so big. Um, and uh, he saw this prop man and realized uh, what a great talent that he was and wanted someone, which we don't necessarily associate with John Wayne uh, later in his life, but at this point, he's 22. He wants someone with this boyish charm, this huge man with this boyish charm and good looks. And uh, so he picks him out to be the star of this yeah. movie, going from prop man to star. Wow. And uh, But Duke Morrison can't work. Uh, it's too long of a name uh, to fit on a marquee. So they're sitting around and uh, they remembered that there was a Revolutionary War general named uh, Anthony Wayne. And so they liked the Wayne part, but the studios being what they were in the uh, 1930s said that Anthony, we can't call him Tony Wayne, that's too Italian. Uh, so they decide, well, we need something more American, uh, John. So John Wayne. John Wayne wasn't at that meeting. These guys just decided what his name was going to be completely without him and then just assigned it to him. Uh, so this new movie, The Big Trail, starring John Wayne, it wraps up production in October of 1929. Black Friday happens, or Black Tuesday. The stock market completely crashes. The depression starts. In 1930, the theaters had just spent all this money to now get talkies. They're not going to spend all the money to get a new screen and new projectors for this new film. The film completely flops. And nobody knows who this, this star is. Uh, so he go, he, but already John Wayne had decided he's not going to be a prop man anymore. He's going to be an actor. Uh, and so he films a few more things and they don't do very well. He gets transferred to a couple studios. And by 1931, he's working for Republic. And Republic was the B movies. Republic was the serials. Uh, kind of what we might think of even less than TV today. Um, this was Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, which are very influential but they're not at the same level as like a big Fox studio release. These were things that were made week to week and you just filmed a new movie every week and it yeah. went out into uh, the uh, theaters the next week. Uh, in fact, some of these early ones, they actually have him singing like Roy Rogers. Not quite like Roy Rogers. Uh, John Wayne, not the greatest singing voice in the world. Um, in 1933, uh, John Wayne uh, gets married uh, to uh, his college sweetheart. They'd been uh, going out uh, for seven years, and they got married in 1933. Next year, uh, their son Michael uh, was born. Um, but uh, John uh, was working a lot. Uh, the, these serials were very demanding. Uh, you were working 12-hour uh, days, and you were doing that every week to produce all these films. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, he didn't come back home. Uh, he would stick around with all the guys, and he would wow. drink, and he would play cards. And mm -hmm. he, uh, he, John Ford, who was a director who now is not at the 
studio that he's working at was still one of his great friends. So he would go and play cards with John Ford, go to John Ford's boat, and they would have fun together, but he's not coming back home. Right. So this led to a lot of um, conflict in the home uh, between uh, John and uh, Josie. Um, all this time for nearly nine years he's just this working actor putting out these serials and then in 1939 john ford um uh, is putting together uh, what's going to be this great new epic Western. Uh, and it's going to be Stagecoach. And uh, he wants uh, John Wayne, his friend, to play uh, the Ringo Kid. Uh, and so they work it out with the studios and Wayne gets to come in. But now, and the, the way you hear this story is different depending on who you're hearing it from. If you're hearing it from the objective outside perspective, it just looks like John Ford is riding Wayne real hard, uh -huh. uh, making him take after take after take. No, step over here. No, say that differently. No, do this, do that. Really riding him hard um, for no reason. The way John Wayne tells the story is that he says that John Ford didn't want to play favorites. And everyone knew that John Wayne and John Ford were good friends. So he wanted to make it look like he was helping John Wayne by riding him so hard so that none of the other actors were jealous. Yeah. And all the other actors would come up and say, hey, kid, you're doing a great job here. You're, he's, he's a jerk. I don't know what. Uh, whatever happens, it's one of the greatest pictures ever made. Uh, this is 1939. This is the year of all this is known as the greatest year in Hollywood. Uh, Wizard of Oz, uh, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Hollywood, and Stagecoach absolutely is up with all of these movies. Um, it's one of the greatest Westerns. Uh, it is a breakthrough uh, for uh, John Wayne. Uh, he becomes a star from this movie. Um, just also, as another note on the movie, when Orson Welles was making Citizen Kane uh, and had no idea how to direct a movie, one of the guys on the set pulled Orson Welles aside and gave him a reel of Stagecoach and said, this is how you make a movie. And Orson Welles just watched Stagecoach over and over and over and over. And that's how he figured where to put the camera, how to zoom in, how to light things everything stagecoach is how you get to citizen king wow uh so john wayne is now this star he's doing uh, some good pictures and then world war ii comes uh in 1941 uh john wayne he's 34 years old he is eligible to go into the service jimmy stewart uh ronald reagan uh, a lot of these guys are putting their careers aside to join up into the military John Wayne is looking like, I just got this opportunity uh, to be in these movies now, the real pictures. I kind of don't want to throw this away. Um, and he also has a family with several children to support. And so he puts a request in to not be put into the military, and that request is accepted. And so he stays in Hollywood and makes movies. And this was a decision that dogged him for the rest of his life, that he was playing all these guys who were the sergeants and were commanding these men into battle. But when the time came for him, he decided not to do that. Um, and it was something that he was made fun of. John Ford became an admiral in the Navy. He became an admiral because he was making movies about the Navy. 
He's in dangerous situations, I will grant him that. He was at Midway filming all the action, but it's not like he's an actual like commanding boats admiral. Um, but it made fun of him constantly for not actually taking that up. And then later on, as you get into the 60s and 70s, he would be critiqued endlessly on the fact that he plays these guys in the movies, but he did not do it himself. Uh. Um, but on the other hand, when he would go and talk at these gatherings with uh, people in the administration, people in the military, people like MacArthur would say that John Wayne is the best recruiting tool there is. He did everything that we could possibly need him to do by inspiring people at home uh, to join the military and join the war effort. Uh, he films uh, lots of movies about the war while he is uh, in Hollywood uh, during uh, World War II. Too. So Flying Tigers is one of these. Um, after the war, he films The Sands of Iwo Jima, and that is still shown to Marine uh, classes today as one of the greatest Marine films of all time. And it becomes something that defines John Wayne's career. Um, he would actually be grant gifted um, Sands from Iwo Jima in a, a sort of plexiglass case, and he took that all over the place with him. Um, during all this time, uh, personal life, his family is really um, suffering. Josie, uh, there's this great rift between him and his wife. In 1942, they get a separation, but Josie's very Catholic and does not believe in divorce, uh, so does not grant the divorce. But John Wayne starts seeing other women. Uh, he's not living in the home anymore. Uh, he has a very public affair uh, with uh, Marlena Dietrich, uh, one of his uh, co-stars, and then he also has an affair with an actress from Mexico named uh, Esperanza Bauer, uh, and going out to nightclubs, going out to all the Hollywood places uh, with this other woman, and so the next year, they get a divorce, uh, and uh, that happens in 43. Three years later, uh, John Wayne and Esperanza get married against the advice of everyone. All of his friends, all the people in the industry said that she was not stable, that she was wild, that she was violent, um, that uh, she had a very sordid past, but he was in love. And so they get married in 1946. And the next movie John Wayne makes, Esperanza is jealous of the female co-star and uh, starts having these very public um, fights with John Wayne uh, on the lot and in the home and very violent fights and a lot of things happening. So again, John Wayne uh, is suffering when it comes to um, his personal life. After the war in 1946, uh, John Wayne uh, uh, makes uh, Red River. So Howard Hawks is the director, one of the greatest directors in Hollywood history. Uh, so this uh, is with Montgomery Clift and Walter Brennan. And uh, this was uh, really John Wayne uh, uh, really going, filling in to being an actor. Uh, so he plays a character, a great meaty role of Tom Dunson, who is this ranch, uh, uh, the leader of this ranch, and it's the first cattle drive to get uh, from Texas uh, up to Kansas. And so the story follows through uh, the whole thing. And he always credits this as being that stagecoach made me a star, Red River made me an actor. Ah. Uh, so this was one of uh, the great 
great meaty roles of his career. Uh, I'm, I promise I'm not going to go through every single John Wayne movie and talk to you about how great they are, uh, though I could. Um, but from this point, from 1941 until today, John Wayne is still listed as one of the most popular actors uh, in Hollywood ever. Uh, and all the time from the 40s to the 70s, he consistently hit number one as the most popular actor in Hollywood. Um, also around this time is where we, uh, he becomes more public about his politics. Um, the Cold War is happening and there's a lot of, uh, threats and this idea of communist infiltration in the Hollywood, uh, in the motion picture industry. And, uh, John Wayne was certainly against communism and against, uh, this idea of the communist infiltration, uh, in Hollywood. And I'll just let you know that it goes both ways. Uh, Stalin actually put in plans ways to assassinate John Wayne. That is how powerful this man and the image of this man is that and what he represents in America and what America is to the rest of the world, that America's enemies wanted to kill him. Um, so he, in 1945, uh, joins the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American uh, Ideals, and he becomes the president uh, of that organization. And this was an organization that named names, that found people in Hollywood and provided those names to the House and American Activities Committee. And not all of those names were people who were actually communists or people who were communists at that time anymore. In the 19 30s, a lot of people were flirting with the idea of communism. Um, and John Wayne has a role. It's more of a figurehead role in this organization, a person out in the public making speeches, but it's definitely a part of his life and something that he never apologized for, that he was, um, he believed in his country. He believed in democracy and capitalism and that there was a communist threat out there and that he uh, was going to be very much against that. Um, he's also uh, very much involved in the Screen Actors Guild. This is when Ronald Reagan is the president of the Screen Actors Guild. And uh, there were threats to the Screen Actors Guild from communists who wanted to take over the organization. And so John Wayne and Reagan uh, worked together to try and uh, make sure that uh, they did not uh, do that. Um, and also, uh, uh, at a, uh, I think it's in the 50s, the Screen Actors Guild goes on strike, and it was a strike that uh, lasted for many months. And there were a lot of people who were uh, critiquing Reagan as, a, uh, as the president of the guild, and uh, this was very hard on Nancy Reagan. And so the Reagan was at Warner Brothers. He really never interacted with John Wayne very much. Um, but one of the days, uh, Reagan goes off to be in the picket line or do these uh, other business and Nancy's at home and she gets a phone call and it's John Wayne. And John Wayne just said, I think you'd like to have a friendly voice right now. And so every morning during the strike, he would call her and talk to her. Um, and uh, uh, Jimmy Cagney would also do the same. And so Ronald Reagan talks about how while he was gone, Nancy had two boyfriends. <laughs> Uh, but the rest of Reagan's career and the rest of Wayne's life, uh, he had a very close relationship with the Reagans. Uh, in 1952, 
all of the personal things that are going on in John Wayne's life come to a head, and Esperanza files, uh, well, she, she asks for a separation, and during the separation, uh, John Wayne goes again to South America to find another wife. Uh, so he goes to Peru, and he finds a 23-year-old uh, Pilar uh, Palate. And uh, she, I did not know who he was. Uh, she knew that he was in Hollywood, but really had no idea who John Wayne was. And that was something very appealing to him. Uh, and they start seeing each other more secretly this time. Uh, she comes up to Hollywood. And in September of 52, Esperanza files for a very public divorce. It's in all of the papers. There are accusations of uh, abuse. Uh, there's accusations of uh, mismanagement of all sorts of things. And uh, it's in the court every day. And it takes over two years, uh, but in November of 1954, uh, the divorce is finally finalized, uh, and that happens. He actually takes Pilar to Hawaii, and he tells the story that in the morning, he was married, in the afternoon, he got divorced, and that evening, he got married to Pilar. Oh, man. Uh, so he had had something like... Uh, four or five children with the first wife. He didn't have any children with the second wife, um, but he would then uh, have, I think, two or three more children with the third wife. Uh, he would have something like seven children and somewhere in 1920 grandchildren. Uh, wow. He was the head of this huge family. Um, I said I wasn't going to go through all of the movies, but I am going to pick out a, f a handful that really show uh, what his skill was. 1955, his friend John Ford makes another Western. This is, some people say, the greatest Western ever made. It's certainly one of the most beautiful. It's The Searchers. Uh, John Wayne plays Ethan Edwards, and this is a role much more complex than John Wayne has ever showed before. It's really not likable. He is fiercely against um, the Comanches and what they have done to his family and to his community in Texas and searching of searching for um, uh, one of uh, the his niece who has been captured by the Comanches. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is a, a great character study. It's shot in Monument Valley. Folks, that's not what Texas looks like, but it's a very beautiful spot. <laughs> and a, a, a great movie and a very powerful dark role for John Wayne. Um, in 1960, this was John Wayne's great passion project, The Alamo. He had been wanting to film this movie for 15 years, and he uh, finally decided to do it all himself. Uh, so he created his own company, and he was going to be uh, the producer, the uh uh, director and United Artists said that they would give him some money if he also acted in it. So he is now the star, the producer, and the director. He was on set every day. Um, he wanted to film in Mexico, but the Daughters of the Republic of Texas said that if you do that, we will ban that movie <laughs> in the United States. So they filmed in Brackettville, Texas. They created this beautiful set. I'm not exactly sure how, how much of it is preserved today, but I know for a long time, a lot 
lot of people could still go to Brackettville and see where they shot the Alamo and subsequent Alamo projects were filmed there. Um, this was a grueling shoot. Uh, John Wayne had never taken on all of this uh, at one time before. Um, and so he's directing and there's a lot of conflicts on set and a lot of things going wrong. The, the budget completely goes overboard, millions and millions uh, over budget. Um, at a certain point, his friend, John Ford, comes to the set. And John Ford uh, really treats him like he's an actor who's out of his depth. And so is trying to tell him the different ways of uh, how to do things. And eventually John Wayne gets rid of him by um, having him be a second unit director and film uh, the Mexican army scenes. Um, but this was extremely stressful. At a certain point, he is smoking 100 cigarettes a day. He is uh, chain smoking, lighting one off of the other one. Um, and on top of all of this stress, uh, the movie comes out and it's a flop. Um, it uh, And really set in stone that people did not want him to be a director or producer ever again. I think it's really interesting that he does all of this because now we see actors who become directors all the time. Clint Eastwood is one of our great actor directors. We see Ron Howard. We see all these people. John Wayne was trying to do this before anybody had done that before, and they just didn't give him the respect. Mm -hmm. um, so many great movies made over the 60s. Uh, so many. He made over 169 pictures, and that's not counting each individual serial. If you count those, it goes well over 200. So again, I'm not going to go into all of these, but at the end of the decade, 1960, he does True Grit. Uh, he plays Rooster Cogburn, and again, a wildly different role from anything that he had done before. Uh, and this is one of the great movies of all time, one of the great Westerns, and it is the one that got him the best actor Oscar. Mm -hmm. So he won the Oscar. Uh, Barbara Streisand presents it to him at the 1970 Academy Awards. And he had been the number one actor for popularity polls forever. Mm -hmm. But this really meant something to him that the people in his own uh, community of artists recognized uh, his talent. Mm -hmm. And when you see him accept the award, he holds it by the base. He doesn't want to hold it around the legs because he wanted everyone to see the whole Oscar, see, I got this. Yes. Um, as you get into the 60s, his politics, um, he becomes more and more known as being this person of conservatism. And there are a lot of critiques about him regarding his politics. He was someone who's uh, uh, not necessarily pro the Vietnam conflict, but someone who recognized that when we have boys who are fighting for liberty and democracy uh, in that land, that we need to support them, that all the demonstrations, he did not like the demonstrations. He believed that that was very disloyal and not patriotic, and that you need to support these boys. Um, and, and the government had a responsibility to fight this war in a way that would win the war. Um, and that's not something that the government was really willing to do. Um, as he becomes more known for his conservative politics, um, he also, uh, in 1968, he makes the Green Berets. This is the only film that was made during the Vietnam War about the Vietnam War. And this was another passion project of his, and he directs it. Um, and uh, it, it 
becomes panned, but because the studios didn't want it to become successful. Uh, the, the studios said that it would be released into certain theaters and that you had to call to get reservations. And then uh, the, the, they, they would say that it was all filled up, but that wasn't the case. They weren't allowing anyone to buy tickets to it. Um, when he's filming the Cowboys, uh, Bruce Dern is one of the only people who actually gets to shoot and kill John Wayne in a movie. Bruce Dern was this hippie, uh, uh, new wave of actor, and John Wayne talks to him and says, you're going to make a lot of people happy by killing me. <laughs> Um, in 1973, the Harvard Lampoon awarded John Wayne the Brass Balls Award for being the biggest fraud in history. Oh, no. John Wayne shows up in person. They have uh, an armored personnel carrier that goes down Harvard Square so that he can pick up uh, this award. And everyone was expecting him to be ornery and to be angry about it, but he charmed the pants off of all of them. They, uh, You see interviews with these kids who thought they were so cool that they were going to really stick it to John Wayne, Mr. Conservative, and they all walk away talking about how great and witty and fast he was. At a certain point, one of the boys goes up and he says, um, uh, Mr. Wayne, why are you wearing uh, uh, the, all, all that fake hair? Because John Wayne was losing his hair and he wore a toupee in the 60s and 70s. And John Wayne goes, that's not fake hair. That's real human hair. It's not mine, but it's real and real expensive. <laughs> and the whole place erupts in laughter. Uh, he had a way of uh, uh, charming the people who were most antagonistic against him and making them like him. Um, in 1965, uh, he is diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, during a very costly procedure, they remove one of his lungs. Mm -hmm. A few weeks later, he was filming in the mountains of Mexico in freezing cold water. Um, his health continued to um, deteriorate as you get into the 70s. In 1976, he makes his last film, The Shootist. This is, un well, I say it again and again, but it's one of the great pictures. Um, it has Jimmy Stewart, it has Lauren Bacall, it has Ron Howard. Ron Howard, young teenage Ron Howard, I guess he's in the middle of Happy Days while it's being filmed. Um, he tells a story which, uh, it, it gets me just hearing about that while they're doing publicity after the film has already been shot, Ron Howard sees John Wayne out, uh, out in Hollywood someplace and John Wayne works his way over to find Ron Howard, grabs a hold of him and says, kid, uh, I've just read this new book. It's going to be my next picture and it's you and me or it's no one. If John Wayne said that to me, that would be, I would be over the moon for the rest of my life. That John Wayne liked working with me so much that he was ready for the next project, but that never came to be. Um, that was his last film. He lives until 1979, but he is diagnosed with stomach cancer. This was what most people believe not a result of smoking. What happened was um, they, in the 1950s, this is a film that I'll talk about that is definitely not one of John Wayne's best. It is The Conqueror, where he plays Genghis Khan. It's pretty stupid. And the fact that he dies over this film is so heart-wrenching that they're filming in White Sands, New Mexico, after repeated nuclear tests had gone off. Um, most of the people who were on that film were diagnosed with cancer and ended up dying from cancer as a result of the nuclear weapons that were being tested in that area. So 
He is diagnosed uh, with cancer in 1979. He makes his final public appearance at the Oscars in 1979. He is very skin, like it's so thin. And in fact, what he does is that he wears a wetsuit underneath his tuxedo to try and give the appearance that he has more meat on his bones. Mm -hmm. And he says to everyone in that, in his speech, um, that he'll be seen, that I'll always be with you. Uh, and uh, well, he always is, but he would not be physically for much longer. As his health uh, continues to deter deteriorate, he is in a hospital in Los Angeles um, on a morphine drip, uh, and it's clear that this is the end. Um, and some of his friends from Hollywood go to Congress, and they petition Congress to award John Wayne the um, Congressional Gold Medal. This is the highest honor that uh, can be uh, given to a civilian. And uh, you, any documentary you see, any exhibit you see, will typically start with the speech that Maureen O'Hara gives about John Wayne. And she's talking to the congressman, and she's saying that uh, you may not completely understand what John Wayne means to people outside of the United States. John Wayne is America. Mm -hmm. This medal should only have three words on it. John Wayne, American. Congress rushes through the process to get that medal made, and it is presented to John Wayne on his birthday, May 26, 1979. He died just a few days later on June 11, 1979. The following year, he was presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Jimmy Carter. What is so interesting about this is that any time a Democratic president was elected, John Wayne would send them a letter saying, I did not vote for you, <laughs> but I'm a member of the loyal opposition. Anything you ever need from me, I'm there. And he sent that letter to Jimmy Carter too. But Jimmy Carter, as one of, uh, in his final year of the presidency, awards John Wayne that medal of freedom uh, posthumously. Wow. Um, John Wayne American, that you can't say anything more than that. That is exactly who this man is. Um, the, I don't know, I think the generation that we live in now has more of a disconnect with John Wayne. He's not as ever-present as he used to be. We don't watch television the same way we used to, where you can see these movies all the time. Um, I talk to very good friends uh, who will tell me that they don't, they don't like John Wayne movies because he plays the same character in every movie. And I have a, a couple of things to say about that. First of all, that's Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s. They weren't creating these nuanced characters for every movie. Instead, you created the actor, and then that actor, you put them in all these different situations. So Humphrey Bogart and uh, Cary Grant are all things that are acting and created. Mm -hmm. You're this person who's then going to be in all these different movies. Mm -hmm. That's just what the movies were back then. Secondly, I would say, what else do you need? What else do you want? John Wayne is the epitome of American masculism, of everything that's good about being a man, good and honest and true. Even when he's playing the bad roles, there's still that genuineness in him. We, for a brief moment in human history, had that encapsulated in one symbol. How great is that? And then lastly, I would say, it's not true. 
when you look at him in these movies, in The Searchers is completely different than Davy Crockett in The Alamo, is completely different from Rooster Cogburn. Sure, he's making 169 pictures. Not all of them are going to be great, but he was an actor who really took his craft very seriously. Um, uh, I, I, even if you are someone, and most of the people who don't like John Wayne probably aren't going to be listening to this episode no. from the get-go, but if you've made it all the way through this and you still have criticisms about the man, I would say even critics of John Wayne, people who believe that John Wayne is the epitome of masculinity and that's a bad thing, that there's toxic masculinity, that, yeah, there are movies where John Wayne goes through a town spanking Maureen O'Hara. I will have you know, that's Maureen O'Hara. He's not spanking the school marm. He's not spanking uh, uh, some gentle uh, woman for nothing. This is a woman who has hit him multiple times already, has hit him emotionally and physically, and will continue to do so. One of the strongest, fiercest examples of individuality and womanhood that there ever was. That's who this is going on with. <laughs> But yeah, the, there are some elements of John Wayne's performances that are not uh, the same view of masculinity that we would necessarily take today. But even so, how great is it if you are against him and everything he stands for, that he's the living embodiment? You have one symbol that you can point to to everything that you don't like. You don't have to pick all these different pieces. You have John Wayne that you can point to. Even then, you have to give it to the man. Um, and I know myself, being a man, there are many times in my life that I will think back and I will think to myself, what would John Wayne do in this situation? Mm -hmm. Just this last weekend, I work at a place where there are sometimes snakes. And I was opening up the bathroom and I saw a copperhead. And I was scared. And I shrieked and maybe said a few cuss words. And then I thought to myself, okay, how am I going to handle this situation? What would John Wayne do? And uh, John Wayne might have picked it up himself with his hands. Uh, I'm not that manly, uh, but I did dispatch the snake so that it would not hurt anybody else anymore. Uh, and that is what John, John Wayne would make sure that he would protect the, the people that he cared about. That's what a good man does. Um, so I, I can't bestow enough praise onto on the man. I love him so much. And uh, we're releasing this on his birthday. So if you're listening to it the day that it comes out, happy birthday, John Wayne. Happy birthday, John Wayne. Well, um, first of all, I would like to say as a strong Irish Texan woman, it would take John Wayne to be able to whip me and spank me. And uh, because there would be no, it would have to be a masculine man that I would have already uh, multiple times uh, thrown things at or what have you. I'm not advocating this by any stretch of the imagination, but let's just say in the romantic fiction category, if a man is going to spank me, he better be John Wayne. That's all I got to say, because it's going to be trouble if he's not. So, you know, there's that. I do appreciate a manly man. And I'm not saying I appreciate a toxic manly man. I'm saying I appreciate a genuine masculine man. 
I personally have Mars and Aries, and I think it, that masculine men are important. Um, so I, I, as a little girl, grew up watching old John Wayne movies because they would come on TV on Saturday afternoon or sometimes uh, on the weekend at night. And that's how I got to, to know John Wayne. I mean, I understood younger John Wayne from that. And then I was growing up in the 70s. So I also was taken to see John Wayne movies. And I understand from several perspectives what it means to have an icon in Hollywood that behaves this way. There's not a lot of difference then and now. I mean, you can look at top actors it, from decades past. I don't know. I mean, I honestly have to say I don't go to a lot of movies right now because I'm not interested in what's happening. But if you go back to Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. He's not doing a different voice. He's basically being Tom. H I mean, I understand maybe for... um, uh. Yeah, he does do different. Uh, there are certainly acting is some example. acting has certainly uh, taken on something starting in the 70s and going forward. You have Dustin Hoffman's. You have these people who inhabit roles. You have Daniel Day Lewis. And yeah, it's a completely different thing. At the same time, instead of having one actor that you create this image because john wayne is a creation that's not even the man's real name he wasn't even present when he was picked but it's this creation and you put him in all these situations now we have marvel movies where you have the same character mm -hmm. captain america or iron man or whatever who you're going to see in 20 different movies right. so it's we're in a very similar position mm -hmm. in that regard and there are other people that are still gonna uh you know follow whatever method they need to to inhabit a role um and, and do something great with that i just say when you say that john wayne isn't an actor i would disagree with you because there are plenty of movies that he made where he is playing completely different characters and is nuanced, very nuanced in the way that he approaches the craft. I agree. And I retract the thing about Tom Hanks because rethinking, you know, Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump, clearly he's a completely different character than he is in, you know, uh, Splash or whatever. You know what I mean? So um, there is that. But I do feel that there are certain people in the industry that are known for their voice and what they sound like in every movie. And even though, but that's the same as life. I mean, you're going to sound like Chandler everywhere you go. And you're going to react to things in a different way. I'm going to sound like me everywhere I go. I'm not going to change my voice. So there is a realism there. You know, it is like Hollywood is letting you get to know this person, even though that person is a character. They're letting you, you think you know that person because they're that person in everything. So there is something to that, I, I, I think. I also think that this may not be the correct birth time. I think that I would like to uh, take a look at what it might look like when uh, we change this to Taurus Rising. So we might look into that. But yeah, I, I think that that interception is absolutely necessary, though. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there was a great disconnect with 
his mother, and that that led to a disconnect with women his whole life. I think it's really interesting that um, he, uh, his mother was, uh, they describe him, her as being very puritanical and domineering, and um, uh, that he marries women consistently from Spanish and Catholic heritage, which mm -hmm. is completely different from what his mother is. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things he said is that, uh, he, uh, that he would want someone who'd go on the adventure with him. Mm -hmm. He A lot of the times the marriages fall apart because the, the wife won't bring the family to the set. Mm -hmm. So he, actually, he gets separated from Pilar even in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And that was because the family, you now have a whole bunch of teenagers mm -hmm. who don't want to go to Mexico every weekend. Mm -hmm. They want to be with their friends. Uh, and so that led to, and her sticking up for the family is what kind of led to the family coming apart. So because his whole family and his wife isn't coming with him along on the adventure was a reason that a lot of his uh, relationships fell apart. But also Sagittarius on the seventh house could have you with a foreign partner because it's Sagittarius, Jupiter is world travel. So it could have you with a foreign partner, someone of a different culture. That is also an aspect of that. Well, this is wonderful, Chandler. I do love John Wayne. I mean, John Wayne was an icon to me when I was little, as well as Elvis, because I was going to marry Elvis. I didn't care how much older he was than me. I was That was the man. That was the one. Um, but yeah, this is brilliant. And I did not know all of this about John Wayne. I could listen to stories about John Wayne all day long. I really do enjoy it because I saw myself as Maureen O'Hara because I was a little redheaded Irish girl. So I totally got what she was doing. I understood all that fire. That made perfect sense to me. I was like, yes, that's right. And I was like 10. So I didn't even know what was going on, but I was like, mm-hmm, we're out. We're leaving. Pack it up. We're packing up the car. We're out. I got it. Made sense to me. Uh, well, I think on our scale of uh, right on the money to way out in outer space, this is very, very close to being right on the money. We might play around with the minutes here, um, but uh, th this is this is who John Wayne was. Well, thank you, Chandler. I agree. And we will definitely have to mess with this a little bit. But um, thank you. Thank you for doing all that research. And thank you for honoring John Wayne on his birthday. On his birthday. Happy birthday, John Wayne. Happy birthday, Duke. Uh, hey, if anyone is around Texas um, and you're going to Fort Worth, there's still an exhibit open at the Fort Worth Stockyards about John Wayne's life. They have tons of... Uh, uh, exhibit materials they have there's a room you go into and you see mannequins uh with a half dozen of his actual costumes and it's like it takes it took my breath away to be and you, there's no glass so you could walk right up to it and see it they have uh, one of his cars that he drove at his ranch um that he had the a new roof put on so that he could fit in it with a cowboy hat on <laughs> Um, just uh, phenomenal. So I encourage everyone to go see the John Wayne American Experience at the Stockyards if it's still open uh, whenever you're hearing this. 
Uh, well, that uh, leads us to the conclusion of this episode. Uh, we'd like to thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as always, we have all the information to our social media posted in uh, the show description. Uh, please reach out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We have new videos coming out uh, from our first season being posted every week um, in shorts as well. Uh, so share those uh, with your friends. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Uh, get those notifications. All of that good stuff. Um, we also have a link provided to our PayPal account. Every little bit helps us in providing a better quality show and expanding our audience. Uh, so uh, please consider donating there. Uh, and if you would like to be your very own Mystery History guest, uh, we can make that happen. Uh, just uh, follow that link in the show description to Chandler's Mom at HistoryandRetrograde.com and Mom can get with you about the details of how to make that happen. Absolutely. You guys, I am having so much fun doing your charts. And now I have return guests who are now coming back so that they can have synastry done. And that means a you and a partner that they can have their transits done. So I can do I just did a, a wonderful I love this woman. Well, I love all you guys. But this woman is uh uh, a therapist who uses astrology as part of her understanding, which is like, oh my, if you want to understand something, you better get a chart. But um, it was so fun because I'm doing synastry for her and I'm doing transits for her and I'm just having a great time doing charts. You guys just email me. I just want to hear from you. I love talking to you guys. Also, please help us get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube. It is now a full-on campaign with me. I've got to figure out how to make it happen. Our views are really crazy good. So if you guys want to see charts associated with the uh, episodes that we did in season one, I just finished editing Dick Clark, which is the last episode for 2021. So now we're going to change Salado Creek logo into 2022. But please go over to YouTube, send people to YouTube, get them to click on subscribe. It's very exciting. Everything is very exciting. We're so happy you guys are on this journey with us. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for uh, all of your uh, downloads and support and the listening and streaming. Uh, it's all uh, just uh, breathtaking uh, to know that that support is out there for us. Uh, that concludes this episode of History and Retrograde. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening. As always, in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything is going to be just fine. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.